Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Today we're going to pick up in the passage that Pat just read in Ephesians um, chapter 2. And I would just want to start by saying that if you look at this passage, and if you look at it seriously, I think what you're going to see is one of the most captivating and compelling visions of the gospel of Jesus that you'll ever come across. Um, the word gospel means good news. And uh, the truth is that most of us have heard presentations of the gospel that actually sound more like bad news, like something that we hope isn't true, because it kind of sounds like a bummer. But if the gospel that we preach doesn't actually sound like good news, then I'd like to suggest that we're doing it wrong. Because just like the angels who first announced Christ's presence in the world, the gospel of Jesus is good news of great joy for all the people. And so if the Spirit of God will give us ears to hear what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 2, I think what we're going to hear is a gospel that actually sounds like good news. Like, even if we hear it and we just can't believe that it's true, we'd at least wish that it was, because it sounds so good. So let's try to hear what the Apostle Paul is saying as he writes this letter to an early community of Christ followers. And uh, we'll just kind of walk through it by the three paragraphs that we have. So starting in verse 11, Paul has just finished reminding these early Christians of the vertical dimension of the gospel, that it is not by works, but by grace they have been saved through faith and that they are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for them to do. So Paul has just said that you aren't saved by your good works, but you are saved for good works. And then the question is, so what are the good works that God has in mind for his people, for those who are in Christ? Well, in verse 11, he begins with, therefore, Meaning he's connecting what he's just said with what he's about to say. Therefore, remember. He uses that word twice in verse 11 and 12. Remember. Remember what? Well, remember that you were once far from God. Remember that you were once separated from Christ. Remember, but now, but now, but now, in verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Here's what we need to understand, is that in the Jewish mind, which is to say the worldview out of which the Bible was written, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who like Neil Diamond and, no, just kidding. In the biblical story, the two kinds of people are Jews and not Jews, um, which is kind of awesome because at that point in history, the Jewish people made up a really small percentage of the global population. But in their mind, either you're Jewish or other. 
Like it doesn't really matter. You're Jewish or you're not. And the word that the biblical authors use to describe not Jewish people is Gentiles. And uh, for most of us, unless you are Jewish, um, that's us. We don't really identify as Gentiles very often. I've never checked that on a form or anything like that, but that's how the Bible would identify us. And um, what's crazy won't get too far into it in these first couple verses. We get into this conversation about circumcision, and all I would say is circumcision for them is basically what the COVID vaccination shot is for us, right? It's the way you get in. And I don't know if they were on the honor system the way that we are, or if there was some sort of exam, but it was a big deal at that point. Um, Either you're Jewish or you're not, Jew or Gentile. And this makes sense because from the very beginning of God's redemption story that really begins in Genesis chapter 15 when God calls this man named Abram to be the father of a great nation, it's the Jewish people who are also known as the Israelites or the Hebrews that have been God's chosen people. That this family that would grow into this great nation is the community through which God says that he is going to bring restoration to his world. And so in verse 11 and 12, when Paul says, remember, he's reminding his Gentile readers that they aren't Jewish, that they weren't born into this thing. He says that they were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenant of the promise without hope and without God in the world. So remember, but, verse 13, but now you've been brought near in Christ. And so he ends the paragraph by assuring them of where they are now, that they are now joined together with Christ and with his people. But that only makes sense. That only sounds like a big deal if first they remember where they came from. There's a whole lot more that we could say about this, but I want you to just grab onto this idea for now and chew on it. Reconciliation requires remembering. Paul's about to get into a bunch of other stuff but it all starts with this command, remember. Reconciliation isn't about forgetting the past. It isn't about whitewashing what happened or sweeping sins under the rug. Reconciliation requires remembering. It's about coming to a shared understanding of history. It's about coming to see what actually went down. So Paul has a lot more to say about the nature of the good works that God has saved his people for, but the first one is this, remember. Don't forget to remember. You were once far away from God, but now you've been brought near. Okay, then in verses 14 through 18, he basically tries to describe how that happened. How is it that a bunch of uncircumcised Gentiles are now fully participating in what had pretty much been an exclusively Jewish movement? I mean, when Jesus was executed, they mocked him 
for claiming to be the king of the Jews. And now there's this community of people formed around his life and his teachings and his death and resurrection. And this community includes both the Jews, but also the non-Jews who are also going in, all in on this thing. So how did that happen? Well, Paul says that this is part of what Christ accomplished on the cross. If you start in the second half of verse 15, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. So in the first half of chapter 2, Paul is proclaiming the good news about the vertical dimension of what Christ has accomplished. That he has united us who were once far from God. He has united us with himself in Jesus. That we are saved, we are forgiven, we are adopted, and we belong to him. But now we start to see that there's another dimension to this gospel as well. That the gospel is more than just our relationship with God, but it also has to do with the restored relationships that we have with others. It's by grace we have been saved through faith, but we are saved to do good works. Or in other words, we are saved to be part of something bigger that God is up to in the world. Last Sunday, if you had the opportunity to worship with us at Crescent Lake, I had the great joy of baptizing my son Moses into the faith. And uh, it was... (laughs) Yeah, it was an awesome time together. And as he and I stood there in the shallows of the lake, before I baptized him, I told him, Mo, you will always be my son. But from now on, you're also my brother. And that's not just true at an immediate, familial, local level. But that's true at a global level historic level. What Paul is saying here is that in Christ's very body, that when he died on the cross, he united us with God and he united us with one another. He made us one in himself. And so listen to this. Peace isn't just something that Jesus preaches And peace isn't just something that he practices. Peace is something that he is. Look at verse 14. For he, Christ himself, is our peace. Christ himself, Jesus, is the peace between us and God and between us. He took everything that divides us into his one body. And his blood was the sacrifice of peace. Is that what we usually think of when we see the cross? That Christ has died not just to make us one with God, but make us one with one another that it is central to the nature of our salvation. It is central 
to his life, death, and resurrection, a new humanity. And so when we think about this new community, this new humanity, this new movement that we've all been welcomed into, as Paul writes here, he wants them to see the radical nature of this thing. The people who were once separated from each other have now turned towards one another. People who would never get along in the wild have become brothers and sisters in Christ. So here's what's interesting. For the original audience of this letter, they were trying to come to grips with the fact that Christianity wasn't an exclusively Jewish religion. But for most of us here today, and I think for most of the people in the world today, that's not really the misconception that we're dealing with. The misconception we're dealing with is that Christianity is a Western religion, that it came from Europe, that it's a white man's faith. The problem, of course, is that Jesus wasn't white. He was a dark-skinned Middle Eastern Jew who lived under Roman oppression. And Christianity didn't come from the West. In fact, the name of our church is a reminder of this. People ask me almost every week, what does Antioch mean? And it doesn't clarify when I say, oh, it's a city in modern-day Turkey. In Acts chapter 11, Antioch is the place where they were first called Christians. It's not a Western religion. This happened in the ancient Near East. That's important for us to understand. Christianity is not a Western religion. But it's equally important for us to understand that it wasn't constrained by its culture of origin either. And this is one of the things that sets the Christian faith apart from almost any other religion or faith in the world. I want to share a few thoughts on this from an excellent book called Confronting Christianity by a British theologian named Rebecca McLaughlin. Great book, Confronting Christianity. And it's the idea that Jesus' life and teachings scandalized his fellow Jews by tearing through their racial and cultural boundaries. For instance, if you think about the parable of the Good Samaritan, well, the Samaritan to the Jews represented a member of a hated ethnic group. They didn't understand race the way we think about it, but they knew who was in and who was out, who were their people and who weren't. And Jesus tells this story in such a way that the Samaritan, the other, is the hero of the story. Jesus, when he gives the Great Commission, tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. And that's what they do. In the book of Acts, we see the Spirit of God enabling the apostles to evangelize, to declare the good news to people from every nation under heaven, including those from modern-day Iraq, Iran, Turkey, Egypt. Like, this move of the Spirit communicates into the heart language of those who are listening that Christianity isn't a multi or is a multicultural, multilingual movement. In fact, the, very Bi the Bible itself 
is a multilingual document. The Old Testament is in Hebrew. The New Testament is Greek. Jesus' mother tongue was Aramaic. And we see traces of Jesus' first language in Mark, where he raises this little girl, heals a deaf man, cries out to the father on the cross. The criminal charge posted on the cross, again, was Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And it was written in three languages to cover all the relevant peoples of the time. So there's no single culture or country or language of Christianity. I remember a couple years ago when we were holding a celebration Sunday where we invited our friends from Dios Esamor and Milal, a Hispanic fellowship and a Korean fellowship to come and to worship together. We've done this several times and the whole service was in three different languages. We had testimonies and scripture readings and worship songs in English and in Spanish and Korean and it was kind of confusing at times, and it was hard to translate it all and get all the right words on the screen and a little bit chaotic. And I remember hearing of one of our uh, wiser women in the faith, a grandma in the faith, if you will, that was telling uh, one of her friends later about this service and how there were all these different languages happening at the same time. And her friend said, well, I just don't think I would want to go to a church where they speak a language other than English. And our sister said, well, then I don't think you'll like heaven very much. (laughs) So Christianity isn't Western, but it's not exclusively Eastern either. Here's the case, and this is an interesting thing. Christianity is by far the largest and most diverse movement in the history of the world. Represents people from all different races, cultures, ethnicities, countries, and colors. In McLaughlin's book, she says there are equal numbers of self-identifying Christians living in Europe, North America, Latin America, and Sub-Saharan Africa. Over 60% of Christians live in the global south. And at the center of gravity for Christianity in the coming decades, the center of gravity will likely be increasingly non-Western. She goes on to quote this Pew Research study that says, by 2060, sub-Saharan Africa could be the home to 40% of the world's self-identifying Christians. And while China is currently the global center of atheism, Christianity is spreading there so quickly that China could have the largest Christian population in the world by 2025 and could be a majority Christian country by 2050. This is the vision of Jesus emerging before our very eyes. This is the gospel that Paul is proclaiming. That these dividing walls of hostility have been removed in Christ and that Christ is forming for himself this people that isn't centered in any one race or culture or ethnicity, but it includes all. This is why We as a church, you 
as a church have courageously joined together on this journey to decenter whiteness from our Christian faith. Because we pledge our allegiance first to Jesus and to his kingdom. The gospel is that Christ has the supremacy in all things. So anything else that would challenge him for supremacy in the church, in our lives, and in our hearts is a false gospel, is anti-Christ. This is not peripheral to the gospel. This is central. Jesus is uniting people to himself and to one another. And this was the multicultural, multi-ethnic vision of the church from the very beginning. Now, I can roll off all these stats about what the church has accomplished, but we also know there's a lot of sketchiness in that story as well. There have been a lot of wrong turns, a lot of evil done by Western Christians in the last 2,000 years. But when we look at the way Christ is growing his church across the world today, it's not crazy to think that this vision could ultimately be realized. So what does it look like then if that is central to what God is doing in the world, central to the gospel of Jesus, forming a new humanity? What does it look like to live out that vision? Well, that's the final paragraph in this section. Starting in verse 19, he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So Paul here uses a few different metaphors to describe this thing called the church to describe the community that's being formed as a representation of this new humanity. He uses the metaphor of a family, the metaphor of a house, the metaphor of a temple. He says this, there's this thing that's being built together, this thing that's emerging and it's built on the cornerstone that is Jesus and the apostles and the prophets before us are its foundation. And we, as members of Christ's family, are the bricks out of which this building is being built. It's fascinating at this time, as Paul's writing, there are early critics of Christianity that accuse Jesus' followers of being atheists. And the reason was that the way they practiced their faith didn't resemble the way people of other religions practiced their faith in the day. Namely, if you said <clears throat> you were a Christian, they would say, well, where is your temple? Where's the place where you go to worship? What's your address of your church? And a Christian would scratch their head and say, we are the temple. The church isn't made out of bricks, the church is made out of people. 
And so Paul then is painting this picture that Christ's ongoing presence in the world doesn't come through a building, but it comes through a people. And he says that the church then is the house of God. In a few weeks, Antioch is going to be moving into our building at 6th and Clay across from Bend High. And we are so excited to be able to gather together in a place for worship that is dedicated to, uh, to Christ and to his people. And it's dedicated to being an embodiment of the good news of Jesus to our neighborhood and to our city. And so it's an exciting thing for us. By the way, the interior looks amazing. The exterior looks terrible. Jesus condemned people whose lives were the opposite of that. So we're going to embrace it. <laughs> A couple of people, well-meaning people, have expressed to me, people from outside the church, oh, I heard Antioch got a church. I was like, no, we've always been a church. Antioch got a building. <laughs> and the building's okay. We may be in it for a little while, we may be in it for a long time, but this isn't like the first time we've gotten to church. We are the church. You are the church. The church is the dwelling place of God's spirit. The church is the temple of God. The church is what Christ was in the world, the physical representation of God's presence and power on earth. And the last thing I'll call our attention to is that Paul is a little bit hard to follow at times in this passage because not only does he mix metaphors, but he mixes tenses. It's like sometimes he's speaking in the past tense, sometimes he's speaking in the present tense, sometimes he's speaking in the future tense. In him, the whole building is joined together, and then in him, you too are being built together, and then the church is joined and it rises and it will become. Is he speaking about something that's already happened or something that will happen? And we know that the answer is both that the nature of God's kingdom on earth is that it's already here and that it's still coming. That its beginnings have been established through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And one day it will be fulfilled in Christ's return. And we as the church live in the time between the times. We're called to live in the present as visitors from the future. We're called to be for the world a foretaste of God's coming kingdom. And so, yes, Christ has accomplished it, and it is still coming true. So, for example of what this looks like. This is why we as a church would lament the lack of racial, ethnic, and cultural diversity in our congregation. That's not me saying you should feel guilty because you're white or that I don't like you because you're white. That's me saying we would all be better off if we would simply acknowledge that our place doesn't yet look like his place 
that we would be better off in a more diverse community, that we would be better off to share life deeply that come from, with people that come from different places and have different stories and different experiences than us. That would be a truer representation of what the new world that God's making is going to look like. And so it's not about guilt, it's about simply lamenting and seeking that his kingdom would continue to come on earth as it is in heaven. And hopefully we'll continue to grow in that way and in every other way to be a people that embody this good news. Now I don't know about you, and there's so much more I want to say here, but I... I think we're starting to uncover a gospel that I actually hope is true. I think we're actually starting to get a glimpse, get a taste of good news that sounds like good news. That even if you're somebody who can't believe that this is true, you would at least say, I wish that it was. I wish I could believe that God has this redemptive plan for humanity that God is at work bringing all things to redemption and to reconciliation, that one day everything will be made right. Even if that sounds too good to be true, if it sounds like something you wish was true, then we're starting to talk about the gospel of Jesus. And so Antioch, my hope and my prayer for us as a community is that we would continue to mine the depths of the beauty and the glory of the gospel of Jesus. And that we would be continually willing to be called by him to go places we've never gone before, to become people that we've never been before, to become a church that looks like something we've never been. This is central to the invitation of Jesus, to be brought near to him and to be brought near to one another and to seek his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Lord Christ, we acknowledge you as the only hope of humanity, as the only one who because of who you are and what you've done for us, has brought down the walls of hostility that have tormented humanity for thousands of years. God, we confess that the brokenness isn't just in the world, but it's also within us. We confess that we've been blind to the true nature of who you are and what you're up to. And so we would invite you by your spirit to open our eyes, to tear down the walls, to draw us nearer to you and to others, that we may somehow be a foretaste of your new world in this world here and now. We need you, Jesus, more than ever. In Christ's name.